Section 68 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 68, by the Reverend H. F. Stewart. Meanwhile, the religion which men of letters and Roman patriots passed over in silent contempt or attacked with covert hatred, had been gathering notions from the very sources which fostered opposition to it. Spoil the Egyptians was Augustine's advice, and not a few distinctive Neoplatonist tenets were borrowed by Christian theologians and lived on through the Middle Ages. The Church indeed rejected from her authoritative teaching the pantheism and nihilism to which those tenets lead if held consistently and affirmed a personal triune God, intelligent and free, a world created out of nothing and to return to nothing, mankind redeemed from evil by one sole mediator, a future life to be enjoyed without the sacrifice of the soul's individual nature. But the Neoplatonists supplied illustration of church doctrine and interpretation of Christian truth, and thinkers who saw danger in anthropomorphism found support for their metaphysic in the heathen school of Alexandria. The time is past when men spoke of fourth-century Christianity as a mere copy of Neoplatonism, but the object and principles of the two systems are so much alike that it is not surprising to find points of close resemblance in their presentiment. The resemblance is most marked in the writings of the Greek and Syrian fathers. The eastern element in Neoplatonism could not but appeal to Eastern theologians. This appeal and its response explain the large welcome extended to the works of the two supposed disciples of St. Paul, Hierotheus and Dionysus the Areopagite, whose rhapsodies were received as Pauline truth not only by their credulous contemporaries, but by the mystics of the medieval church. In these writings the personal existence of God is threatened, and the direct road to him is closed. Quote, God is the being of all that is. The absolute good and beautiful is honored by eliminating all qualities, and therefore the non-existent must participate in the good and beautiful. God, who can only be described by negatives, can only be reached by the surrender of all personal distinctions and by voluntary descent into uncreated nothingness. As has been well said, the name God came to be little more than the deification of the word not. All this is the language of Brahmanism or Buddhism, and, but for the corrective influence of Christian experience on the one hand, and of Greek love of beauty on the other, it would have led to oriental apathy and hatred of the world, which God called good. The Cappadocian fathers, Basil and the two Gregories, who were Platonists at heart, and were driven by the argument that God being simple must be easily intelligible to assert in strong terms the essential mystery of the divine being, yet maintained that imperfection does not render human knowledge untrue, and that the wisdom displayed in the created universe enables the mind to grasp by analogy the divine wisdom and the uncreated beauty. This habit of tracing analogies between the seen and the unseen is characteristic of Platonism, Christian or heathen, and, we may remark in passing, 
it bears pleasant fruit in that love for natural beauty that marks the writings of the Cappadocians. The mind of Plotinus is seen still more clearly in Synesius of Cyrene, A.D. 365-412, country gentleman, philosopher, and bishop, who was in every sense a Neoplatonist first and a Christian afterwards. All his serious thought is couched in the language of the schools, while his hymns are merely metrical versions of Neoplatonist doctrine. When he was chosen bishop, he was reluctantly ready to give up his dogs, he was a mighty hunter, but not his wife, nor his philosophy, although it contained much that was opposed to current Christian teaching on such important points as the end of the world and the resurrection of the body. He probably represents the attitude of many at this transition period, though few possessed his clearness of mind and boldness of speech. The influence of Neoplatonism in the West is less marked, but it is there. Hillary's curious psychology, according to which soul makes body, is Plotinian, although he may have taken it from origin. And his own sketch of his spiritual progress from the darkness of philosophy to the light gives evidence that he first learned from Neoplatonism the desire for knowledge of God and union with Him. C.F. De Trinitate, 1st, 1 to 13. Augustine was yet more deeply affected by the philosophers, especially in his early works. It was Plato, interpreted by Plotinus, whom he read in a Latin version, that, as he himself tells us, delivered him from materialism and pantheism. Thus the ecstatic illumination recorded in the Confessions, 7, 16, 23, was called forth by the perusal of the Aeneids, and is indeed expressed in the very words of Plotinus. Again, in more than one passage, there is a distinct approach on his part to the Platinian Trinity, one, mind, soul, or at least a statement of the Christian Trinity in terms of being, knowledge, and will, that seems to go beyond the limits of mere illustration or analogy. Again, Augustine accepts and repeats, word for word, the Neoplatonic denial of the possibility of describing God. Quote, God is not even to be called ineffable, because to say this is to make an assertion about him. End quote. De Doctrina Christiana 1.6 But, like the Cappadocians, his feet are kept from the hopeless via negativa by an intense personal conviction of the abiding presence of God and by a real vision of the divine. His mind and heart taught him the real distinction between the old philosophy and the new religion. But all his deepest thoughts about God and the world, freedom and evil, bear the impress of the books which first impelled him, quote, to enter the inner chamber of his soul and there to behold the light, end quote. The appeal away from the illusion of things seen to the reality that belongs to God alone, the slight store set by him on institutions of time and place, in a word, the philosophic idealism that underlies and colors all Augustine's utterance on doctrinal and even practical questions and forms the real basis of his thought, is platonic. And considering the vast effect of his mind and writings on succeeding generations, it is no exaggeration to say with Harnack that Neoplatonism influenced the West under the cloak of church doctrine and through the medium of Augustine. Boethius, the last of the Roman philosophers and the first scholastic, 
certainly imitated Augustine's theology and thought like him as a Neoplatonist. At the same time, it must be remembered that Platonism was the philosophy that commended itself most naturally to Christian or even to heathen thinkers. Aristotle had had no attraction for Plutarch, while Macrobius deliberately set out to refute him. The influence of Aristotle is certainly seen in the treatment of particular problems by individual writers, but the only school that deliberately preferred his method to his masters is that of Antioch. To the mystical and intuitive movement of Alexandria, the Antiochenes, especially Diodorus and Theodore of Mapsuestia, opposed a rationalism and a systematic treatment of theological questions, which is obviously Aristotelian. But there were two articles of the old religion that went deeper and spread further into the new than any philosophic method. These were, first, the mediators between God and man that were so prominent in Neoplatonism, and secondly, the magic that was its inseparable accompaniment. It is mere futility to find a pagan source for every Christian saint and festival, but a study of hagiographic literature reveals a very large amount of heathen reminiscence, and even of formal adoption, in the Church's calendar. Doubtless there were other factors in the growth of the cultus of the saints and their relics, human instinct, the Jewish theory of merit, the veneration of confessors and martyrs, and the strong confidence which from an early date was placed in the virtue of their intercessions. But the extraordinary development of the cultus between A.D. 325 and 450 can only be explained by the polytheistic, or rather the polydemoniac tendencies, of the mass of Gentile converts with the memories of hero and demon worship in their minds. Again, Neoplatonism involved the use of magic. The Christianity of the day admitted belief in it. For while the Bible forbade the practice, it did not deny its potency. Closely connected with magic stood divination, whether by astrology and heroification, or by dreams and oracles. The Neoplatonists, following earlier thinkers, were committed to a theory of inward illumination, and ascribed the various phenomena of divination to the agency of spiritual forces working upon responsive souls. Christians allowed the supernatural inspiration of pagan oracles, but held that it came not from God like the inspiration of the prophets, but from the fellowship of wicked men with evil demons, of whose real existence they had no manner of doubt. The fact that scripture used the word daimonian of an evil spirit was immediate evidence of his existence and his wickedness. Philosophers might plead that there were beneficent demons. Daimonian had only one sense in the Bible, and that was enough to condemn all that bear the name. The demons, in the worship of whom, as Eusebius said, the whole religion of the heathen world consisted, were the object of the Christians' deepest fear and hate as being the source of all material and spiritual evil, and the avowed enemies of God. To them were due all the errors and sins of men, all the cruelty of nature. Wind and storms fulfilled God's word, but when mischief followed in their train, it was the work of Satan and his angels. Intercourse with these was stringently forbidden, but no one questioned its possibility. Augustine records the various charms and rites by which demons can be attracted. 
he was a firm believer in his mother's dreams and in her power to distinguish between subjective impressions and heaven-sent visions. And Synesius, writing, it is true, before his conversion, states his conviction that divination is one of the best things practiced among men. Magic had been the object of penal legislation from the early days of the empire, but the very violence of the laws passed by Christian emperors against it points to the prevalence of the belief in it, a belief which the lawgiver shared with his subjects. Constantine and Theodosius may have really looked to their anti-magical measures as a means to destroy polytheism and purify the church, but the former emperor expressly excluded from the scope of his edict rites whose object was to save men from disease and the fields from harm, while his son Constantius and Valens and Valentinian were persuaded that magic might be turned against their life or power, and by way of self-defense fell to persecuting the magicians as fiercely as their predecessors had persecuted the church. The title, Enemies of the Human Race, formerly applied to Christians, was now transferred to the adepts of magical arts. But present punishment and future warnings were powerless to check practices that were the natural result of all prevailing credulity. What this was in heathen circles may be learned from the pages in which Ammianus Marcellinus, A.D. 325-395, describes the Rome of his day. Quote, Many who deny that there are powers supernal will not go abroad, nor breakfast, nor bathe, till they have consulted the calendar to find the position of a planet. End quote. In Christian circles, the credulity took also another form, that of an easy belief in miracles, not only of serious import such as the discovery of the bodies of Gervasius and Protasius, which is still a problem to the historian, but trivialities such as the winning of a horse race through the judicious use of holy water, the gift of reading without letters, and all the marvels of the Thebaid. The truth is that amid the universal ignorance of natural laws, men were ready to believe anything. And it must be confessed that what greatly fostered credulity and error among educated Christians was the literal interpretation of Scripture, which held the field in spite of Alexandrian allegorism. The scientific and common sense of Augustine were alike shocked by the interminable fables of the Manichaeans concerning sky and stars, sun and moon. But it was their sacrilegious folly that finally turned him from the sect. The authority of scripture is higher than all the efforts of the human intelligence, he wrote, and the words exactly expressed the mind of churchmen whenever there was a conflict between physical theory and the faith. The erroneous speculations of early philosophers, from whatever source derived, were taken up and readily adopted, provided that they did not contradict the Bible. There are already anticipations in the 4th century of the marvelous scheme of Cosmas Indicopleustes in the 6th, whereof the chief features were a two-storied firmament and a great northern mountain to hide the sun by night, all duly supported by scriptural quotations. The result to which Greek speculation had by supreme intellectual effort arrived were cast aside in favor of the wildest Eastern fancies, because these latter had the apparent sanction of Genesis and the Psalms. The heliocentric theory of the universe, which although not universally admitted, 
had at least been propounded and warmly supported, was deliberately refused, first on the authority of Aristotle, and a system adopted which led the world astray until Galileo. Genesis demanded that the earth should be the center, and the sun and stars lights for man's convenience. Again, the notion of a spherical earth was favored in classical antiquity even by geocentricians. But the words of psalmist, prophet, and apostle required a flat earth over which the heavens could be stretched like a tent, and the believers in a globe with antipodes were scouted with arguments borrowed from Lucretius the Epicurean and materialist. Augustine denies the possibility not of a rotund earth, but of human existence at the antipodes. Quote, there was only one pair of original ancestors, and it was inconceivable that such distant regions should have been peopled by Adam's descendants. End quote. The logic is fair enough. The false premise arises from the worship of the latter. The fact is that, while as spiritual teachers the fathers are unrivaled, common-sense interpretation is rare enough in our period. It is not often that we find such sober judgment as is shown by Basil. What is meant, he writes, homilies in Psalm 28, by the voice of the Lord? Are we to understand thereby a disturbance caused in the air by the vocal organs? Is it not rather a lively image, a clear and sensible vision imprinted on the mind of those to whom God wishes to communicate his thought, a vision analogous to that which is imprinted on our mind when we dream. In connection with the unquestioning trust in the letter of Scripture as the touchstone of all matters of knowledge, some mention must be made of attempts to adjust universal history by the standard of biblical dates. Although the results in one instance at least bear witness to no uncritical credulity, but to singular freedom from prejudice and to love of truth. The science of comparative chronology, so greatly developed by the Byzantines, was really founded by Sextus Julius Africanus in the early 3rd century. The beginning which he made was carried out with far greater knowledge and with the use of much better material by Eusebius, bishop of Caesarea, AD 265-338. Former critics were inclined to belittle Eusebius's work and to qualify him as a dishonest writer who perverted chronology for the sake of making synchronisms, so Niebuhr and Bunsen. It is certainly true that he manipulates the figures supplied by his authorities and employs conjecture and analogy to control the incredible length of their time periods. But his reductions are all worked in the sight of the reader who, if he cannot allow the main contention, viz. the infallibility of the biblical numbers, must confess the honesty of the method and the soundness of the process. In dealing with Hebrew chronology, Eusebius shows candor and judgment. There was need of both, for even when the discrepancies between the Hebrew and the Septuagint texts were removed by claiming for the latter a higher inspiration, there remained contradictions enough between the covers of the Greek Bible. For instance, the time between the Exodus and Solomon's Temple is different in Acts and Judges from what it is in Kings. On this point Eusebius, after a fair and sensible discussion, decided boldly to the dismay of his contemporaries against St. Paul in favor of the shorter period, 
remarking that the apostles' business was to teach the way of salvation and not accurate chronology. The effect of this decision is to lessen the antiquity of Moses by 283 years. This was clean against the whole tendency of previous apologists who desired to establish the seniority of the Hebrew over all other lawgivers and philosophers. Eusebius, although conscious that the reversal of preconceived opinion demands some apology, is content to place Moses after Inachus. The work in which these novel conclusions were set forth consists of two parts, of which the first, Chronographia, contains the historical material, extracts from profane and sacred writers, for the synthetic treatment of the second part, Canones. Here the lists of the world's rulers are displayed in parallel columns, showing at a glance with whom any given monarch is contemporary. Side notes accompany the lists, marking the main events of history, and a separate column gives the years of the world's age, reckoned from the birth of Abraham. The choice of this event as the starting point of the synchronism distinguishes the work of Eusebius from that of his predecessors, and does great credit to his historical sense and honesty. As a Christian, he felt that his standard of measurement must be the record of the scriptures. But as a historian, he saw that history really begins with Abraham, the earlier chapters of Genesis being intended for edification rather than instruction. At a time when the Jews were a despised race, it was no slight achievement to place their history on a footing with that of proud and powerful monarchies. And although Eusebius's work cannot at all points stand the test of modern science, it is of permanent value today, both as a source of information and as a model of historical research. The canons were translated by Jerome, and thus obtained at once, even in the West, a position of undisputed authority. The Latin medieval chronicle is founded on Eusebius, whose name together with his translators quite overshadowed all other workers in the same field, whether earlier or later, such as Africanus or Sulpicius Severus. But although the learned labors of Eusebius bear witness to a strong individual regard for truth and a vast range of secular knowledge, the solid contributions to thought on the part of Christian writers must be looked for in other directions. The period which we must admit to have been marked by so much credulity and error in matters of science is the period of the ecumenical councils, of the conciliar creeds, and the consequent systematization of Christian doctrine. Councils gathered and expressed in creed and canon the common belief and practice of the churches. Their aim was not to introduce fresh doctrine, but precisely the reverse, to protect from ruinous innovation the faith once delivered. Nor were the creeds, which served as tests of orthodoxy, intended to simplify or explain the mystery of that faith. Rather, they reaffirmed, in terms congenial to the age, the inexplicable mystery of the revelation in Christ. It was such heretics as the Arians who tried to simplify and explain the difficulties that confronted the Christian believer. This intellectual effort was met by an appeal to experience, to man's need of redemption, and the means by which that need is satisfied. The great advance made by Athanasius was really a return to the simple facts of the Gospel and the words of Scripture. Quote, he went back from the Logos of the philosophers to the Logos of St. John, 
from the God of the philosophers to God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. End quote. In a word, the great victories of the 4th and 5th centuries were the victories of soteriology over theological speculation. Into the thorny labyrinth of the Arian and Nestorian conflicts there is no need to enter in this chapter. We have only to consider what contributions to general thought were made by the victorious party. The process of fixing the terminology in which the results of the Arian controversy were expressed and the doctrine affirmed of one God in three persons of equal and co-eternal majesty and Godhead could not be carried through without a serious attempt to deal with the problem of personality. Pre-Christian thinkers had no clear understanding, or at least had not formulated a clear view, of human personality in its two most essential features, viz. universality and unity. These were necessarily brought out by Christianity, first in the historic figure of its founder and his unexampled life, and then in the development of the doctrine of his person. In that development the Cappadocian fathers were pioneers. The formula in which they declared the eternal relations existing within the Godhead, mia usia tres hypostases, marks a great advance in scientific precision of thought and language. Up to A.D. 362, usia and hypostasis were interchangeable terms. Athanasius, in one of his latest writings, says that they both mean being. Misunderstanding and confusion inevitably followed. But after the Synod of Alexandria in A.D. 362, usia, in Christian documents, means the being which is shared by several individuals, and hypostasis, the special character of the individual. For this happy settlement, Basil of Caesarea was largely responsible. He distinguishes between the terms and defines usia as the general, hypostasis as the particular in application to both human and divine existence. Quote, Every one of us both shares an existence by the general term of usia and by his own properties in such and such a one. Similarly, the term usia is common, like goodness or godhead, while hypostasis is contemplated in the special quality of fatherhood, sonship, or the power to sanctify. End quote. The way was thus prepared for Boethius's great definition of person as the individual substance of a rational nature. Persona est nature rationalis individua substantia, contra eutichem et nestorium, 3, which was accepted by Thomas Aquinas and held good throughout the Middle Ages. But between the time of Basil and Boethius, a great controversy had arisen which carried forward the recognition of the facts of human personality, the controversy concerning the will and its freedom. To understand this, we must know what were the current opinions concerning the origin of the soul. The Platonic doctrine of pre-existence, as taught by Origen, had had its day. The only traces of it within the period are to be found in the pages of Nemesius, the philosophic bishop of Emesa, and, less certainly, in those of Prudentius, the Spanish poet. Thus the field was divided between creationism and traducianism. The former view, according to which each soul is a new creation, the body alone being naturally begotten, 
emphasize the essential purity of the spiritual principle, the evilness of matter, and the unity of man's physical nature. Traducianism, on the other hand, maintained the transmission from the first parents through all the succeeding generations of both soul and body, and sin therewith. Creationism left room for the exercise of a free will, enfeebled but not destroyed by the fall. Traducianism seemed to exclude free will and to posit a total corruption of soul and body. Creationism was held by most of the Eastern Fathers and by Jerome and Hilary in the West. Traducianism by the Westerns generally and by Gregory of Nyssa. Augustine, without definitely declaring himself on either side, was so far traducianist that he regarded the fall as a historical act resulting in such a complete disablement of man's will that a special divine operation was required to start him again on the Godward path from which Adam's sin had driven him. Without grace man can only will and do evil. To this conclusion Augustine was led in large measure by his own experience. He had undergone a twofold conversion, first intellectual and then moral. The former brought him a conviction of divine truth and beauty, the latter a recognition of human weakness. He had seen God, but the cloud of sin obscured the vision, the power of the world still enthralled his will. For the surrender to which he felt himself called meant surrender of all his habits, hopes, and desires. The conflict between his will and his reluctance was terrific. The world must have won had not God come to his aid and set his will free to serve. Looking back at his life, the long enslavement of his will and the final victory, he is compelled to confess that he himself contributed nothing towards the restoration of his will and the recovery of peace. He had always believed in God's grace, but once he held that man's own faith, fruit of free will, went forth to meet it. Now he felt, and St. Paul confirmed the conviction, that the whole movement was from God, that faith as much as grace is his gift, and that both are determined by the inscrutable decree of his predestinating counsel. Henceforth, this conversion took place in A.D. 386, the sense of God's guidance colors all his thought, a guidance unseen at the time, but recognizable in a retrospect. What was true for him must be true for all. Augustine's character and circumstances are the clue to his later doctrine and his controversies. Thus it was the passionate cry of the confessions for help against self, da quod iubes et iube quod vis, that evoked the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius, quiet inmate of the cloister, hardly knew what temptation is, and protested against words that discouraged moral effort and fostered fatalism. Quote, Grace was good and a help, sin was widespread, but the latter was due not to an inherited taint, but to the influence of Adam's bad example. Man can overcome temptation if he sets his will to it. End quote. Augustine met the charge of fatalism by a scornful repudiation of the superstitions that attend the system, and of the impiety that confuses blind and undiscriminating fate 
with grace working with infinite wisdom on vessels of choice. But God's predestination involves necessity, and this he coordinates with man's free will in a scheme that clearly betrays the influence of Roman jurisprudence. The synthesis is incomplete. The facts are stated scientifically and empirically, but the legal cast given to a purely metaphysical conception clouds rather than clears the issue. Here was material for debate. The fight began in AD 411 and lasted with varying fortune until AD 418, when Pelagianism was condemned by councils in Africa and at Rome. The infirmity of the will and the vital need of grace for the fulfillment of God's purpose being affirmed against all compromise. But a strong body of Christian sympathy, due partly to the prevalence of the monastic ideal and partly to a confusion between sin and atrocious sin, remained and still remains on the side of the Pelagians. Attempts were made to mediate between the two extremes by Cassian and Faustus of Rees, both of them monks who were in great fear of fatalism and who, while condemning Pelagius as a heretic, urged the need of man's cooperation in the work of grace. The predestination of a few they regarded as simple impiety, though they could not deny God's foreknowledge as to who are to be saved. It is plain that foreknowledge raises more difficulties than it answers. A further and a bold attempt at explanation is offered by Boethius, who saw very clearly the danger of measuring the arm of God by the finger of man. He starts with the thesis, All things are foreseen, but all do not happen by necessity. But how can human freedom be really free if it is already foreseen by God? The answer lies in a recognition of the difference between the divine and human faculties of knowledge. Quote, God's knowledge is a present consciousness of all things, past, present, and to come. Human knowledge as regards things future is called prescience. The divine knowledge of things future is rather called providence than prescience, because transcending time it looks down as from a lofty height upon a time-conditioned world. Such knowledge is no more incompatible with human freedom than human knowledge is incompatible with present free acts. End quote. De Consolazione Philosophiae End of section 68